All right, let us remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We'll be in Matthew 5, which is on page 1029 of the Bibles under your seats uh, in front of you. Before we read God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I praise you for your Word, the opportunity to read it. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to its truths. You'd give us understanding. You'd see... Help us to see what it means to know and follow you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we've been going through the book of Matthew, getting to know who is this Jesus that we get to serve. And so today we'll read uh, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. um, And uh, we'll read all of chapter 5. So uh, if you have to sit down, because it's a little longer of a chapter, feel free to sit down. But we're going to read through uh, chapter 5 of Matthew. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven." You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift therefore before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. 
It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Nothing more than this comes from evil. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. You may have a seat. If you ever uh, take a visit to Juneau, Alaska, there's a place there called the Glacier Gardens. I was reading about the Glacier Gardens a little bit this week, and one of the caretakers of the garden, you know, there had been some kind of flood, and so they were doing some reconstruction and redoing of the gardens there. And as he was doing his work with the big machines that he had, he got frustrated at one point because it wasn't going according to plan. So he took one of his big machines grabbed a tree with it, and placed it upside down into the mud. Well, after he had placed this tree upside down, when he saw how the root ball and all the roots cascaded down over the tree, he had a wonderful idea. What if I plant flowers in the root ball? And so he he planted all kinds of flowers in the root ball of this tree that was upside down in the ground, and thus the upside-down forest was created. And so if you ever go to Glacier Gardens, you'll see this upside-down forest, all birthed out of frustration and seeing something beautiful that could be upside-down. Not many things upside-down work out very well. Can you drive a car while upside-down? No, you'll get in an accident. Try drinking a glass of milk while being upside-down. Or play a sport while you're upside-down. Utter failure. Or think of the human body. If we are upside down for too long, it doesn't go very well for us. We're not meant to be upside down. So when we see things upside down, it it can make many of us cringe. That's not how it's supposed to be. Please fix it. Make it normal. Being part of the kingdom of God, part of following Jesus, is like living upside down. See, we're called to serve Jesus Christ as Christians. And in serving him, we're to become more like him as we mature in our faith. That's our calling. And Jesus, 
he was all upside down. I mean, think about what we've seen up to this point in Matthew about Jesus' life. He's a king. But as a king, he was born in a manger, not in a castle. As a king, somebody who had some power, the Jewish king, wanted to murder him and kill him and eliminate him. Jesus went away and fasted for 40 days so he could pray. This king, who did he call his followers? Fisherman, tax collector, a zealot. These were not the most popular or influential people. Yet this is the king we serve. And he did not live like a king ought to live. He did things upside down. No wonder the Jewish leaders were like, you're not the one we're expecting. You can't be the Messiah. He wasn't a king in their eyes. He was living more like a servant. And they missed the point. Living for Jesus, living as one of his children, serving his kingdom means serving in a way that looks upside down. We're being countercultural, and that's okay. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount illustrates beautifully that as Christians, we're to be countercultural. We're to be living in an upside down way from the world's perspective. The things we do, the things we say, they don't line up with the world's standards, and people will take notice. The problem, though, as many in our church, maybe even perhaps some of us sitting here this morning, some of us listening on the live stream this morning, we want to be more normal. We don't want to stick out. We don't want to seem as weird and odd as people. We don't want to make waves with our family, with our friends, with coworkers, maybe students in the classroom. Can't we just fit in? So I pray that you are encouraged by this first section, not just encouraged, but also challenged in this first section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, yes, every section, this is a long section to read, and every section could have a sermon or two or three on it because there is so many topics right here in chapter 5. But what I want us to come away this morning is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to live in an upside-down way. We're not to live according to the ways of this world. And we can't live according to the world and be okay with it. And so this chapter is full of examples that show that. And I just want to hit a couple of them this morning. Can't possibly hit every single one of them. So let's jump right into the Beatitudes. You see that in verses 2 to 12. Now the word blessed is used several times as you read through this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Something blessed is something that is made holy, something that is consecrated. Of course, there's another big word. Consecrated is set apart, made sacred. And so as we read through those who are being blessed, it goes against what the world says about who we should be, about how we should talk, about the things that we should do, the things that we should attain. And so let's look just at a couple of those Beatitudes. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. When you look up what meek means, it's a person who's quiet, a person who's gentle, someone who is easily imposed upon, someone who is submissive. 
Now, people will say in the world, if you were to ask them, who will will be the most powerful? Who's going to lead? Who's going to inherit the earth? Who's going to have these positions of power and influence? It's not meek people that would come to mind. In fact, most people would probably say the opposite. It's the loudest person. It's the most outgoing person. It's that real go-getter. It's that person who's not afraid to get in people's faces and call them out and confront them and tell them how it is. And you see that in most world leaders. They're almost never meek. But the fact here is that Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. That's what Jesus wants us to strive for, to follow him, to be blessed by him. There needs to be an air of gentleness. There needs to be an attitude of submissiveness. There needs to be that that desire to allow others to be ahead of ourselves. And yet the world looks at meek people. And they might call them things like, you're a doormat. You're a pushover. Maybe even times they might say, you're compromising who you are, what you believe. But that's not how God sees it. Jesus modeled meekness. He was quiet before his accusers, quiet before Pilate. He didn't defend himself. He was submissive to the Father's plan that he needed to die for the sins of his people. Philippians 2 says, Christ humbled himself to the point of death, leaving us an example of how we are to consider others ahead of ourselves. Meekness is not weakness, like the world says. Upside down. Countercultural. Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We live in a world that hates Christians and what we stand for. The attitude of our enemy, Satan, is he would want all Christians to go away. He wants all Christians to stop serving Jesus and to serve him. And so we've seen in the history of the church. Satan has unleashed persecution on Christians of the world. Men, women, children being killed because they believe in Jesus, because they follow him. Others who aren't killed lose homes, lose jobs, they're injured. Family members, friends abandoning them because of their desire to follow Jesus. They lose everything. And yet here it says, you're blessed. The world would look at somebody and say, You've lost everything. You're not blessed. You're cursed. Look what you don't have anymore. And yet, as Christians, we're richer than anybody else. We have eternal life. We have the opportunity to inherit the kingdom of God. Matthew 16, 26 says, What profit is for man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? That verse smacks in the face of what our world believes. I mean, think of a couple things here. There was a millionaire who once said, he who dies with the most toys wins. Or Andrew Carnegie, the steel mogul. Upon his deathbed, he sat wondering, could I have earned $100 million more? The world doesn't understand people who would be willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. Why would you give up riches? Why would you give up titles? Why would you give up power, relationships, and comfort? 
Why would some of you even die for Jesus? Upside down. Countercultural. Verses 11 to 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What? Rejoice? Be glad? Are you kidding? Fight. Hit them back. Don't let them knock you down. Fight fire with fire. The world doesn't understand why you would be ridiculed, stolen from, physically punished, and then rejoice and be glad. You can't see your reward. You're losing everything you have. Ridiculous. Yet as Christians, the things we see, the things that we can lay our hands on, they're not the things that are to drive and motivate us as we live in this world. But it's the reward of eternal life that drives us, that encourages us to stand up for our faith. It's a reward we don't see, but it's an eternal glory that far outweighs any riches that this world can offer. The things we accumulate here, they stay here. After we die, we take none of it with us. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The world says afflictions, hardships, they're bad. Do everything you can to avoid any of those things. Don't settle for negative things. Who believes that bad things can be positive? Christians. Christians who live in the love with Jesus Christ, who, was, who himself was killed for claiming to be the Messiah for telling the truth, the one who would save his people from their sin. When you read through the book of Hebrews, you come to Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. And when you come to near the end of the chapter, we see a mention of many people who are willing to suffer for their faith in Jesus. Some of them even dying some pretty horrible deaths because they had faith in Christ. Something they could not see, but they hoped for, that they would attain because of the promises God has given in his word. Upside down, counter-cultural. Verses 14 to 16, now we move out of the Beatitudes. Don't hide your light, verses 14 to 16. In our culture, it's increasingly hostile towards the Bible towards its message, towards its messengers. The attitude of the world is, keep quiet. Don't push your beliefs on us. Just keep it to yourself. And sadly, there's many Christians, there's many churches in our culture today, even here in America, that have taken our cues from the culture and have disengaged from the world. Many have retreated to an attitude that says, I'll share the gospel, and when necessary... I'll use words. I don't want to make waves. I don't want to get people upset. 
I just want to secretly live among the world without people really knowing who I am and what I believe so they don't get offended. And in doing so, we have done the opposite of what Jesus says in his sermon. He says, you are the light of the world. You don't take a light and put it under a basket, but you put it on a stand so all people can see it. People need to see that we're different, that we're not like the world, and we're not to hide that. Now, the only way people are going to know to give glory to God is if they know him. And according to Romans chapter 10, the only way people are going to know God is for people to tell them using words. Paul says in that chapter, how will they know unless somebody tells them? (coughs) Words are necessary. People are not saved by seeing your actions, but they're saved by the light being shown, the words of life being shared with them. The world says, take your seat and don't speak. And Jesus says, stand up like a light on that hill and speak. Jeremiah 20, verse 9, Jeremiah shares how he could not hold God's word in. It was like a fire burning within his bones. He was tired of trying to hold it in. He had to share. He had to talk about God and who God was. The world doesn't understand why we'd want to stick out why we'd want to become a target because of what we're talking about and sharing. And what I would say is, you're not a target. What you are is you are a beacon of light that people are drawn to because they see you're different. They see Christ. And so don't let the world tell you how to live. Upside down. Countercultural. Now I told you, There could be a sermon on every section on this part of the Sermon on the Mount, but hopefully you see the point. We serve a king who is not like other kings. We serve a kingdom that is not like other kingdoms. We share a message that is countercultural and upside down in this world. It's not like any other message. And so what I want to do is just summarize a few of those other messages throughout the rest of this first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 21 to 22, it says, If you're angry, if you insult your brother, or if you say, you fool, you're subject to judgment. We live in a culture that happens all the time, and nobody bats an eye. Upside down. Verses 23 to 24, Someone has something against you, go and initiate reconciliation. What? If someone is upset with me, shouldn't they come to me? Why should I initiate a conversation? Why would I want to make things right with them? If they have a problem with me, they need to take the initiative. Upside down, countercultural. Verses 27 to 30, Jesus teaches on lust. If you look at a woman with lustful intent, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. If your eyes or hands cause you to sin or to lust, cut them off, gouge them out. We live in a world that is okay with sexual immorality. I mean, look at pornography and the amount of people that are watching it. Look at the amount of marriages where if I'm not happy, I can just step out on my spouse. 
Look at the sexual messages in music and TV and movies. It's normal. Everybody does it. Everybody says it. Not the Christian. We're held to a different and a higher standard. Upside down. Countercultural. Verses 31 to 32. Divorce someone on the grounds of sexual immorality is okay. A person who is unfaithful has died to the covenant promise. And we would put abuse and abandonment falling under this guideline. But what if I fall out of love? What if we don't get along? What if we don't have anything in common with each other anymore? I'm supposed to stick with my marriage? I'm supposed to stick with my spouse? That's what Jesus taught in his sermon. Upside down. Countercultural. Verses 33 to 37. Perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Your yes should be yes. Your no should be no. That doesn't fly today. We're quick to renege on our promises. Something better came along. I didn't know what I was committing to. I didn't know that this would be so difficult and hard. And often we apply those excuses to work, to friends, to marriage, and even to our commitments in the church. Upside down, countercultural. Then in verses 38 to 48, we have a whole cartload of teachings that Jesus gives us in regards to people who hurt us and who are our enemies. Don't resist the one who is evil. If he slaps your cheek, turn him the other cheek. If he takes your tunic, give him your cloak. They force you to walk a mile, walk two miles. Don't refuse the person who wants to borrow from you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Countercultural. Upside down. So what was Jesus thinking as he was preaching this sermon? Didn't he know he was calling us to be a people that would stand out, that would not be popular, that would risk losing everything just to do these things? How could he ask so much of us? Jesus knew. His ministry was about being countercultural. When he walked this earth, he challenged us how to serve him, how to follow him with our lives. And so if we think, again, of some of these counter-cultural things he did, he gathered around himself a ragtag group of disciples. These weren't the most popular. These were not the influencers. These were not the most educated. They didn't even get along with each other all the time. They were judgmental. They were impulsive. They even fled from him when things got tough. These were the people Jesus called to himself. When Jesus performed miracles, there were several occasions where he said, shh, don't tell anybody. I don't want anybody to know what just happened, what I just did. It's not the time. Or when he picked up a basin and a towel and he washed his disciples' feet, something that was left for the lowest of servants. Or He called the Pharisees the respected rulers of the day, whitewashed tombs, brood of vipers, because they were selfish, because they believed the wrong things and were leading people astray through their practices. He told people, pick up your cross, follow me. And the list can go on. So the question to us is, are we being salt and light? 
When people look at you and see you, they see somebody who's not like everybody else. When people around you, do they experience God in a way they've never experienced and don't know how to explain? As followers of Jesus, people should be drawn to us. Not because of our winsome personalities, not because of our worldly accomplishments, not because of anything we've done, but they should be drawn to us because Jesus is at work and evident in the areas of our lives. 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. First command there, don't conform to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't live like the world. Don't live like that person lived before Jesus came, forgave you, gave you a new name, made you into a new creation. You are a man and woman of God. And we're not to live like the old man. But yet many of us live like that old man. It feels good. It feels natural. It feels like I'm just one of the guys, just one of the gals, living like everybody else. It feels normal. Don't. That's not what God wants for us as followers of Jesus. Which leads to the second command. Be holy as God is holy. Be holy in all your conduct. That means be set apart. See, God is set apart from all the other gods. The other gods are man-made. The other gods are dead. Dead gods. Our God is alive, not made by man. He's set apart. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to get to, to God is through me. Other gods, other religions, they claim to have the truth, but they don't. They lead people astray. And so God is saying, just as I'm not like any of the other gods, so you, my people, be set apart from all the other people of this world. So God called you to follow him. He drew you out of the mud and the mire of the messages and the grasp of this world, out of the grasp of your own sin. God did that work in cleaning you up and giving you hope. You did not do that work. And so we are called to live holy, to live set apart in all of our conduct. In everything we do, we are to live set apart from the world just like God is set apart from all the other small g gods. So what does that mean when you think of your job? How do you work at it? Are you different from the other employees? Or think of you in school. How do you respect your teachers? Are you different from the other students? When you think of competing at sports or other activities, are you different from the other athletes or the other participants? When you think about how you talk about the authorities over you, yes, even leaders we don't like or agree with, are you talking about them and is your attitude towards them different from other people and how they talk and their attitudes? Get the point. Be holy. Be set apart. By doing this, we show ourselves to be a people who are upside down who are not like other people. 
And people will be drawn to that. People will ask questions. What makes you different? Why do you talk that way? Why do you act that way? I guarantee you, you will get those questions. And then we will have an opportunity, an open door to talk about our faith in Jesus Christ, to share what he has done for us. So the question is, will you do it? What's holding you back? We can only live like this if first we know Jesus. And so, do you believe you are a sinner that does not deserve to be in heaven? Do you believe that Jesus lived a perfect life? Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe he rose from the dead? Do you believe this not as mere facts, but as something Jesus did for you so that you could have hope, so that you could have eternal life in Jesus Christ? That's a hope we can have today. So I encourage you to talk to somebody before you leave. We want to share that hope with you. We want to pray with you, encourage you, share with you our stories of how God has forgiven us and given us that hope and enabled us to be people who live countercultural and all upside down for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you for the words you give us in Scripture. Lord, the challenge for us to not live like the world. And Lord, I know sitting here this morning, there are those of us who are living like the world because it's comfortable. It feels normal. And yet you've called us to a different standards as followers of Jesus. You've called us to embrace the truth. You've called us to embrace the promises of your word. And your promise, Lord, especially when we get to the end of Matthew, is that you promise to be with us wherever we go. And so may we go not living like the world, but living according to the standard you've given us in Scripture. And we know that starts only first knowing Jesus. And so I pray for those who may not know you this morning. Take those hearts of stone. Help them to see the truth. that They can't get to heaven alone. They can't accomplish anything alone. That they're dead in their sin. And they need forgiveness that's found in Christ and Christ alone. Bring them to faith in you, Lord, this morning. We praise you for the work you do, for how you continue to love us and care for us. Lord, may we serve you with all of our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.